wisdom is referring to life, is preparing us for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That was 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 to 18. Um, what a powerful image we see of what death means to a Christian. Um, death is a difficult thing for much of the world to grapple with. I think it's a difficult thing for all of us to grapple with, but something we must all face. We will all face our own deaths. And by the time we get there, we'll all face the deaths of others. That's just how it is. And so um, a few of us heard this week, Beck shared the story of her university experience. She took a course. Was it called Facing Death? And it was re required for any medical student, because you'll face death in your profession, we want you to face death now in your education. And so the first assignment, write your will. The second assignment, plan your funeral. And the third assignment, write your epitaph. Can you, epitaph is what they write in your gravestone, or it's like, or you might see it in an, in an obituary as well. So, um, really, the idea is that anyone in this course will really grapple with, really face their own mortality and face their own death. And it, really, it sounds like an excellent exercise for anyone to take on. We don't, maybe sometimes it sounds like we give homework, we don't check homework <laughs> at KC. But this week, maybe it'll be a good exercise to actually go through those things. What, what should your will look like? What do you want your funeral to look like? What do you want people to remember about you and write on your tombstone, on your gravestone? Um, and maybe share that with someone else as well. How much thought have you given to your own death? If we ask that question to a room full of people of all sorts of beliefs and backgrounds, um, I think Christians would engage with this question most eagerly. It's kind of a loaded question in favour of Christians. After all, we have the very best deal on death. We do. Uh, believe in Jesus, get eternal life. Not by our own works even. We don't even have to be good enough, but just by what Jesus has done for us. That's a sweet deal. And in Jesus, we also have the best claim to the truth about death. Uh, Jesus, the historical figure, teacher and healer, witnessed by, publicly executed, and then witnessed by hundreds after his execution, after his crucifixion, kicking off this huge movement that through persecution, through all resistance, exploded in love and generosity and life, the historical record points to a Jesus who said he would die and rise again, died and rose again. So I think Christianity does have the best claim on the truth about death. So in theory, it's easy for us as Christians to embrace this question and maybe seem kind of positive about death overall, but make no mistake, death is an enemy an intruder. Death wasn't in creation in the beginning. Yeah. Death only came in with sin. 
It's not just that the first people didn't die until they had already sinned, but Paul writes in Romans as well that when sin entered, through one man sin entered, and when sin entered is when death entered. Sin is when we divert from our created purpose to love God and love others as we should. And when we do, that sin distances us from God and death steps in and fills the gap. So death is an enemy, but is also the doorway to stand face to face with God in the end. And so here's the Christian view on death. Death is indeed bad. Death is indeed a doorway through which we'll finally meet God. And then we will either face God's perfect justice or God's lavish mercy. It really is. The worst that we can face is God's perfect justice. And the best we can face is truly lavish mercy. And Jesus is the difference between the two. And Jesus extends his hand of grace to anyone and everyone who will receive it. That is the Christian view on death. We see that lavish mercy here in the reading, 2 Corinthians 4, 17. The light and moment, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We haven't earned for ourselves that glory. That beyond all comparison is beyond anything we could possibly store up for ourselves. It's in Jesus, this lavish mercy of eternal good with our Saviour, with our Creator, with each other. How good is that? So... Um, Here's what I want to accomplish in this sermon. I want us to look at death the way Paul does. I want us to be excited for what's on the other side of death the way Paul is because of what Jesus has done for us. When I read this passage, I see this vast gulf between what, um, what our irreligious culture around us sees death as and what we see death as. For the sort of atheist view of death, death is game over. Any good that can ever be experienced happens prior to death. Death will cut your plans short. You'll be done. At least it's just neutral nothingness, maybe. So maybe it's suffering cut short. But it is not good and is not a way to goodness. But the Christian view of death is this doorway to, as I said, lavish mercy. And by lavish mercy, I mean all our created purposes fulfilled. I mean, bodies transformed, desires redeemed and satisfied, eternal glory in a new creation with God. That's actually something to be excited about, right? That's something to look forward to. A few years ago, um, <clears throat> John Piper, this preacher, I'm sure many of you have heard of him, he shared that he had heard that a friend of his was in hospital with uh, stage four cancer. I don't know if he had just been diagnosed or if he was being treated, but it really wasn't looking good. And he went to visit this friend of his in hospital. And he fondly remembers the conversation that they had. He doesn't share it word for word, but he shares the gist of it, the tone of it. It is joyful and frank. It is, you're dying. I'm going to die. We're going to see Jesus. How good is that? And joy from both sides. And so, looking back, Piper said of this conversation, um, where have I put it? Nothing is more sweet, precious, deep, 
awesome than to stand beside a person who in a matter of weeks will be in the presence of Jesus. Nothing is more awesome. Can you imagine the beauty and wonder of that? Can you imagine being excited about that with someone? You're about to see Jesus. Can you imagine being that person and being excited about it? I'm about to see Jesus. I'm going to beat you there. And I'll greet you there when you get there too. Isn't that wonderful? This is a view that is all throughout the history of Christianity. This is how, this is the Christian view of death. Paul writes to the Philippians, to live as Christ, to die as gain. We'll look at that a little bit, more late, more, a little bit later. Um, Dwight Moody in the 1800s, nearing his own death, wrote, pretty soon you're going to read in the Chicago papers that Dwight Moody is dead. Don't you believe it? I'll be more alive than I am right now. Isn't that awesome? Tim Keller wrote, all death can now do to Christians is to make their lives infinitely better. And then a few weeks ago, as he approached his own death, he said, there is no downside for me leaving. Not in the slightest. This is what I want for us today, to grow in this view of death. Not, not death as good, but death, what's on the other side of death in Jesus? I want us to be all in on eternity with Jesus. Does that appeal to you? Yes. To be joyful about death? Not that death is good, but about what you, what's on the other side of it for you. I'm hearing a lot of yeses, and that's great. I understand that there's some reservations as well. That's okay. Um, we don't want to be preoccupied with death. We don't want to be immobilized by death. Death's coming, why do I even do anything? No, that's not what we want. But for many around the world, death knocks, and they're not ready. Death knocks on the door and catches people by surprise, their hands full with whatever they were doing. Oh, now? I was, I was kind of in the middle of something. I was pursuing something. I was building a legacy. I had something I wanted to fix before I go. Really, does it have to be now? Years ago, I saw a talk, a, a TED talk by an EMT um, in his years of experience in the ambulance. He was with many people in their dying moments, and he was reflecting on this time. Uh, he said that when people know they're dying, they'll often express three desires. One, for forgiveness or regret about some aspect of their life. Two, to be remembered. And three, to know that their life had meaning. A desire for forgiveness, a desire to be remembered, and a desire to know their lives had meaning. Now, this wasn't a Christian talk, and he offered a really, it was a hard talk to listen to. And he offered optimistically that despite these things, people tend to accept their death peacefully. But these are not great notes to end on, are they? They're not great desires to have at the end. 
there's room for much greater hope, much greater hope that we find in Jesus because in Jesus we know we have forgiveness. That's number one, sort it out. Forgiveness from the only one who can forgive sins. Number two, my hope to be remembered, well, if we have eternal life in Jesus, we continue to enjoy him and continue to be enjoyed by each other. Being remembered is for the dead. We'll be alive in Jesus. And number three, to know our lives had meaning. In Christ, we know God is purposeful in everything. We know that whatever we stuffed up and didn't stuff up, whatever happened in our lives, God worked out his good purposes in us and God completed his good purposes in us, even if we thought we were in the middle of something. So for the Christian, death knocks on our door and even if our hands are full, oh, it's my turn, I guess I was done with that. I'll see you all there. Isn't that awesome? Are you all in? on eternity with Jesus. Okay, I've been talking about how being all in on eternity with Jesus changes how we face death. Uh, it's also going to change how we grieve with each other. We do still grieve death. Death is still an enemy. It's also going to change how we comfort each other because we shouldn't grieve alone. And it's also going to change how we live. How we grieve, how we comfort each other, how we live. That's what the rest of the sermon is going to look like. So let's talk about how being all in on eternity with Jesus changes how we grieve. New Bible passage, if you do want to turn there, 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 14. Paul's writing to the Thessalonian church. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. I think the key there for us right now is uh, that you may not grieve as those as others do who have no hope. This is not condemning grief. This is not saying there's no place for grief. But when a Christian dies, it's not hopeless grief. When I lose a brother or sister in Christ, it is sad that I will not see them for a while. I will miss them. I'll feel their absence. I had an expectation of being able to see them again and that expectation is gone. There is sorrow, but it is not hopeless. I'll compare it to uh, my relationship with my wife before we got married. Before we got married, we were in a long-distance relationship for three years, from here to Canada, 12-hour time difference. Um, it's quite a trek to get there. And so uh, we saw each other two to three times a year, which was as much as we could do. And every time we parted ways... We grieved. We were distraught that we were no longer with each other and it was going to be a long time until we saw each other again. But also, we looked forward to seeing each other again. We had an expectation, even if the next flight wasn't booked, that we would see each other again. And maybe that seems like a trite example compared to death, but for the Christian, we will see each other again. 
We will. It's probably going to be a while. Maybe Jesus will come tomorrow and it won't be a while. But it's probably going to be a while. But we will see each other again. It changes how we grieve. It changes how we cry about those brothers and sisters we lose. Those brothers and sisters we lose, not really to death, Paul says here, but to sleep. And Paul isn't afraid of saying dying. This isn't a euphemism. When you take like a kind of neutral word and put it in the place of maybe a triggering or offensive word to, to soften the blow, Paul's not afraid of saying dying. He says sleep because there's a, a, of the drastic difference between the Christian experience and the non-Christian experience in, in death. When a brother or sister in Christ passes away, there's the expectation that they will be awake again. There's the expectation that they'll return to life. And so sleep is an apt comparison. It's not mincing words, really. This is a significant difference. Um, and it's better than sleep as well in that when we sleep, we usually expect to wake up to more of the same. But this is the kind of sleep that you wake up to even better. Lavish mercy, transformed bodies, the presence of Jesus face to face with Jesus. Eternal life. And in the resurrection, death is no more. Can you imagine going to sleep, waking up, and death is done with? Sickness is done with. Sin is done with. And it's all better. And so we can rejoice as well as grieve when we lose our brothers and sisters for now. <laughs> awesome. Didn't realize I was that loud. <laughs> now, <clears throat> while Jesus does offer the free gift of eternal life to anyone and everyone who will take it, not all take it. And not all even hear of it. So death that is not sleep is still a thing. And death that is not sleep is still something we grieve. Remember, it's an enemy. Remember, it came in with sin. It's an intruder. We do not take joy in death. I keep re repeating this point because I want us as Christians to be joyful in the faces of our own death because of what comes after it, but not to be joyful about death. You know what I mean? If we see death joyfully, it is not because of something therein, but something thereafter in Jesus. We are still grieved by death, by the loss of death, and look forward to every tear being wiped away by God himself in the resurrection. And we trust that those who do face death that is not sleep, those who do face death without Jesus' righteousness put on them, that the worst we get is God's justice. That he is not, that God is kind, that God is right, that he will give appropriately. All right. I know we could, we could spend one more time on grief 
um, but we need to continue on. We don't only face our own grief in death, but we also face the grief of others. So here's how being all in on eternity with Jesus changes how we comfort others in their grief. We're going to John 11. If you're following along on your Bibles, John 11, verses 32 to 35. I'll read that for you. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was saw, was, and so, sorry, I'll, I'll set some context. <clears throat> um, Mary and Martha, their brother Lazarus was sick. Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus, come, you can heal him, you can save him. So now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. By the time Jesus got there, Lazarus had passed. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. It really is a fascinating story to see Jesus grieving with them in this way. Because if you read the whole chapter, and it's well worth reading, Jesus knows he's going to be too late. And his disciples say, where are we going? And he said, My friend, our friend Lazarus is asleep, and I go to awaken him. He knows what he's going to do. He knows Lazarus is dead, and Jesus is going to raise him to life, as basically as soon as he gets there. But before he does, he sees those grieving, and he sits with them in their grief. He, see those weep, he sees those weeping and he weeps with them. Even though this, of all deaths that we might call sleep, this is kind of the shortest, isn't it? He's about to wake Lazarus up. He grieves with them. He is hurt by death, his enemy. And what death his enemy has done to those he loves. And with a sincere heart, he joins them in their grief. We are called to join each other in both rejoicing and weeping. Jesus sets the example here in John 11. Also in Romans 12:15, Paul writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. This is how we comfort each other. This is how we love each other. This is how we should feel in response to others' sorrow. Even, even for those who've lost someone who they will see again in eternity with Christ. We grieve with them. I'd like to read to you from Job. Um, Job famously lost his property, lost his children, lost his health. And his friends came to see if they could help him. Job 2, verses 11 to 13. Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from, the, from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. 
They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, usually, I'm just going to grab that just in case. (laughs) Usually, when we talk about Job's friends, it's their example of what not to do. Throughout the book of Job, they're going to mischaracterize God and mischaracterize Job and call this God's judgment on him. If God's doing evil to you, you must have done evil things. They've got a warped theology, and and the book of Job is mostly about saying, these are a bunch of things people might think about this kind of situation, and they're wrong. And this is the reality of it. That's how we look at Job. But so far, they actually haven't stuffed anything up at all. So far, they're actually nailing it. What did they do? They made a plan. All right, our friend is grieving. Our friend is in a bad way. Let's get together and help him. So they've made a plan. They go to him and see his grief, and they grieve with him. They weep with him. They are distraught at what has happened to this man they love. And they stay with him, even when there's nothing to say, even when it's too early to have a conversation about it. They just be with him. We can imagine it one of two ways, maybe. One is really, literally just being with him. Um, Probably for seven days and seven nights, they're also helping meet his needs, right? They're helping take care of him. The important thing is that they are with him. It is... It is so easy to be isolated in grief. And they're not letting that happen. Sorry, I can't even read now. (laughs) Friends of mine overseas lost their first baby when he was very, very young. And it wrecked them. What a terrible loss. And what made it a little bit worse, but meaningfully worse, was how isolating it was for them. That close friends of theirs, who didn't know how to be with them in this grief, chose not to be with them at all. And so as they grieved the baby they lost, they lost friendships too. Isn't that ridiculous? Isn't that absurd? Others... They didn't distance themselves from them, but they wouldn't engage with them about it at all. They wouldn't ask how they're doing. They'd rather not have that conversation. Others seemed to have this expectation that they'd kind of moved on after a few weeks or maybe a few months and didn't understand that this is the kind of wound which may never close until the resurrection. So the reason I want to spend some time here 
because I don't want anyone to be isolated in their grief. I want us to follow the example of Jesus. I want us to follow the example of Job's friends and be with each other. Even if it means saying nothing at all, at least be there. Make a plan together with others who love each other, who love the person who's grieving. Grief must not isolate us. It must bring us together. Not because of any goodness in the grief itself, but because of the compassion that we get from Jesus, because of the love that God has for all, of, for all people. Weep with those who weep. Be with those who grieve. Help meet their needs. Don't let them feel ignored or isolated in their grief. Where there is hope, help them gently, gradually into that hope without the expectation that that hope seals away their wounds for the rest of their lives. All right? I'll tell you what, it's never been so long, it's never been so many years that you can't ask. How are you feeling? How are you feeling about what happened? I know we could spend a lot more time there. But I want to return to facing our own deaths. I read, uh, so two weeks ago, I, I bought On Death by Tim Keller. I knew I was preaching on death today. Tim Keller passed away recently. We've heard from him what he thinks about death. This doorway to impossible joy, that death just makes things better for Christians, right? So it seemed like a good thing to do. And he very helpfully, in his experience, drew a distinction between what death means for um, losing loved ones versus what death means for ourselves. And so what does death mean for itself? We looked at it at the beginning. It, it, it's a pathway to something joyful. It really is. What that means for losing loved ones, it means grief, hope in some places when it's a brother or sister in Christ, really wonderful hope, even room for rejoicing, but grief and comfort when we're, when we're looking at what it means for loved ones. I want to return to what it means when we're facing our own death. We looked at knowing what's on the other side for us in Jesus. It's eternal glory with Jesus to look forward to. What does that mean for death? Now we're going to look at what does it mean for life. I'm going to read. This is, this is the uh, last reading. Um, if you want to turn there, it's also the biggest one, I think. Philippians 1, verses 20 to uh, 26. Philippians 1, verses 20 to 26. It is my eager expectation, this is Paul writing, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, 
for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He's writing to a church. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. To live is Christ and to die is gain. What a powerful claim. That to die is gain, that is what we're trying to tap into here. That's what we're trying to really be all in on here. Live or die, Paul can't decide which he'd prefer. Not that he's making a choice which to actually do. But it's clearly far better for him to go and be with Jesus. And Jesus still has work for him to do. So he'll continue to do the work. This is how that all in on eternity with Jesus impacts our life. Paul illustrates it for us here. The more the more to live is Christ, the more to die is gain. Does that make sense? The more to live is Christ, the more to die is gain. And vice versa, the more to die is gain, the more to live is Christ. What I mean is, the more our lives are Christ-centered, centered, more we're trying to glorify God in our lives, the more we're trying to walk in God's will, but like, not by um, striving to please God, but by a desire to walk with Him, by a love for Him. The more we do that, the more our perspective on eternity is really wholeheartedly, oh yeah, to die is gain. And also, the more we understand that to die is gain, the more we understand that on the other side of death is eternal joy with our Creator, with each other, with perfect bodies, with sin gone, with death gone. How awesome is that? The more all in we are on that, the more it makes sense to glorify God, to glorify Jesus with every aspect of our lives. The more it makes sense to be all in on Christ. As, that's not what Paul's saying here. That's the example he's setting. For him to live as Christ and for him to die as gain. And we see that the reason he really wants to stick around at all is to glorify Christ all the more. And the reason he doesn't want to stick around is to be with Jesus. How awesome is that? So, going all in on to die as gain means going all in on to live as Christ. Practically, for us, this means really loving Jesus above all, well and truly above all, more than our career, more than our aspirations. Those are kind of like, not easy to do necessarily, but they're easy to understand. Yep, no, I get it. Jesus is more important than my job. More than our friends and our families. I'm not saying not to love your friends and families. I'm saying to love Jesus way more and Here's the thing. Jesus loves our friends and families better than we do. Without a doubt, right? Yeah. Even, when we try to, even when we try to practically love those uh, we do love, we often stumble. We sometimes make things worse. We're kind of a little bit impotent in love. And Jesus knows how to love them better than we do. And because Jesus loves them better than we do, 
No good love gets neglected by a proper love of Jesus. No good love gets neglected by a proper love of Jesus. So understanding that, take this encouragement when we're talking with each other, when we're praying, when we're meditating on the word, to love Jesus well and truly above all. And no good thing will be neglected from that. Um, when we love Jesus above all, we put others before ourselves. When we love Jesus above all, we serve selflessly. When we love Jesus above all, we love our spouse and our children sacrificially. So love Jesus above all. And when we love Jesus above all, it's not just for his glory, but it is for his glory. And it's not just for his good, but it is really good for us but it is also for the good of those we love. It is better for my wife that I love Jesus above all. It is better for everyone I have any interaction with at all, anyone who I might have an impact on their lives, it is better for them that I love Jesus above all. And anyone who has any impact on my life at all, it is better for me that they love Jesus above all. That's the reality of it. We are... We have a weekly podcast. We talk about what, what's going to be preached on, the topic or the passage. Um, we have a conversation. Uh, it's called Conversations About Light. We have a conversation with Caleb, and, and two of the elders will be in that conversation as well. Um, Josh, I really enjoyed that conversation when we were talking about death. And Josh ended on a really good note, a really helpful question that I do want us to consider. He said, um, The Christian life is a series of deaths, we are to die to ourselves. Now, I'm going to um, interpret that and embellish that a bit. I hope you don't mind. Um, <laughs> this means to live as Christ is different from to live as work or to live as play or to live is to be in love or to live is to achieve or whatever it might be. As we mature in our love in Christ, we are dying to these other things. So when Josh asked at the end of the, of the podcast episode, um, what are the small deaths that I need to die as well this week as an invitation to reflect, to be proactive in this journey, to pro be proactive in growing in our love for Christ, in our Christ-centeredness, in God's kindness as we, as we grow as Christians, Christ-centeredness kind of just happens to us to a degree. But also we are called to proactiveness in it. We are called to engage with it. And this is a way to engage with it. What needs to change? What can change such that I love Jesus even more? Please don't see this as um, like laying down a rule for you to follow or something like that. Um, take it as an invitation. An invitation to more joy in God's plan for us and an invitation to more fearlessness in death. If you believe Jesus is Lord, fearless, fearlessness in death is yours as much as you want it. And if you don't believe in Jesus, why not consider what death is to you? Why not think about what's going to happen, what will happen, 
and whether to accept Jesus' extended hand of grace to you, this invitation to eternal life instead of death. Death need not be the end. I want to close how uh, Tim Keller closed his book on death. It's well worth reading. He wrote, Grieve with hope, wake up and be at peace, laugh in the face of death, and sing for joy at what's coming. If Jesus Christ has you by the hand, you can sing. And then he closed with this beautiful prayer, which I want to close with as well, and then um, Josh will lead us into communion. Let's pray.